It's Psalm 1 in page 543 in the Blue Church Bibles. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they are like chaff. The wind blows away. Their wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now let me begin by asking you a question. Are there any little routines that you have that you always do when you go and visit family? Now when we go to see my parents in Wolverhampton, we always make a mark on the wall. My mum, particularly, who uh, has loved the role of grandma and has embraced it full-heartedly, love when she sees the girls to use the line, my, haven't you grown, as grandma should when they haven't seen their kids for a little while. The thing is, though, for the girls sometimes, that is not enough. They don't just want to hear they've grown, they want to see that they've grown. So if you could put the first slide up, please, Grace. This is a picture of the marks which go up on the wall. You can't see it very clearly, but over time, it's grown and grown, started right down here. This is actually the girl's cousin, Olivia, who's just started appearing on the wall as well. And they've strung all the way up there. And the thing is, when they see how much they've grown since last time, and because they've got dates next to them as well, so they get to see how they compare with their sibling when they were at the same age, they beam with pride because we love to see that we've grown. And that doesn't just stop when you are children. We all love to see that we have grown. And as we get older, we stop growing vertically. A lot of us keep growing horizontally, but we stop growing vertically. (coughs) But we still have that desire to grow, don't we? Now, I don't think, if you're a Christian, I don't think I need to convince you that growth is a good thing. I think you already know that growth is a good thing. So the question that we should probably be asking is not, should I be growing? It's, how do I grow as a Christian? Now, some people would tell you that Christian growth is really about your behaviour, changing what we do, living to better moral standards. Others would say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It's not about our actions, it's about our knowledge Christian growth is about understanding the Bible and doctrine better. That is how we grow. Still others would dismiss both those things and say, no, no, it's our feelings and our experience which mean that we are growing. The key to growth is truly engaging our emotions in what we're learning about. Now, the truth is that each of these play an important part in our growth, but none of them are the predominant driver True growth as a Christian only takes place when we are rooted in God. To grow up, we must first delve deeper into our relationship with God. This morning, we're looking at Psalm 1, where we see not only how to grow, but how to be blessed. That's the first word in the whole book of the Psalms, blessed or blessed. Now, it could be translated as Oh, the happiness, or fulfilled, or right. This psalm is pointing us to where we find ultimate happiness, where we find bliss. The writer does this by first telling us what not to do, 
and then secondly, what we should do. So we'll examine both of these things, and then we're going to finish by considering how do we measure up to the two groups of people that are described in this psalm, the righteous on one side and the wicked on the other. So first point, what not to do. Verse 1 begins, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. So firstly, if you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to be blessed, you should not step, uh, you should not walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Now in modern language, we use the word wicked pretty sparingly. We tend to reserve it for those we consider to be the very worst in society. Those who not only hurt other people, but seem to take pleasure in it. Those who prey on the vulnerable. That's because we tend to think of sin predominantly as being against other people. Now the Bible is very clear that we should love other people, that we should protect the the vulnerable and that we should seek justice. But that's not how it predominantly defines sin. Sin is predominantly seen in terms not of being against other humans, but as against God himself. First and foremost, sin is against God. The wicked then are those who have turned their backs on their creator, who are living in rebellion against God. So does this mean that we should separate ourselves from anybody who separates themselves from God? Well, in a word, no. I think we can look at the life of Jesus and conclude pretty quickly that's not how he lived. The key thing is not who you spend your time with. It is to continually ask, what is the direction of influence in this relationship? We are very strange creatures as human beings. We become like those that we spend time with. So either you are changing other people or they are changing you. Now it can be incredibly subtle, but I think that's exactly what this verse points us to because it starts with walking in the same direction, then we stop and stand, and finally we sit down. A blessed person isn't someone who outright avoids sinful people, but they do not adopt their lifestyle. Because as verse 4 goes on to tell us, they recognise that to do so is to be like chaff that the wind blows away. Now, we all like to think that we are very much our own person. But the truth is, we are all being shaped by someone or something. So my question this morning is, how you spend your time preventing your spiritual growth? Are you being shaped by those around you? An awful lot of people I know find their identity in their work. Now, as Christians, our identity should be in Jesus. But if we're not careful, we can begin to adopt the views and beliefs and values of those around us. Are you gradually adopting the views of your friends and your family? When you follow someone on social media, are you just digitally following them or are you allowing them to change you? Is climbing the property ladder and going on good holidays and having nice things beginning to be the things that you live for because that's what all your mates live for? 
This psalm warns us that we are all going to be shaped by something. The secret to growth and blessing as Christians is finding the right thing to shape us. So this brings us to point two. What should we do? Verse two points us to what should be shaping us. It says, blessed is the one, and then verse two, who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The blessed person is not shaped by those around them. Instead, they're shaped by the law of the Lord. Now, when we hear the law of the Lord, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments and the other rules that we find in the first five books of the Bible. I think these rules are in mind here, but so too is the context in which those rules were received. God had already rescued his people and he gave them the law not as a means to earn that rescue, but as a way for them to live out their newfound freedom. The truly happy person, the person who is growing, meditates upon God's word day and night. Reading alone is not enough. The blessed person meditates upon it. Now, I tend to think, when I think of meditation, I tend to think of Far Eastern religions and the ability to empty your mind. I think of Kung Fu Panda. That's not the kind of meditation the psalmist is talking about here. The word used, um, the word used in Hebrew can be translated as to ruminate, which is another way of saying to chew over. Now, to give you an insight into my week, I've watched some interesting videos this week on cows chewing the cud. <laughs> Did you know that when they eat grass, they generally swallow it pretty quickly? But the thing is, grass is, um, needs breaking down before they can get any nutritional value from it. So before it goes into their stomachs, it goes into their rumen, which is like a big fermentation vessel. When it's been there for a little while, it gets regurgitated back up into the mouth <laughs> and chewed for a second time, and then it gets passed back down into the rumen. And this process of back and forth happens several times before eventually it gets passed down into the stomach and the cow is actually able to get some nutritional value from the grass. So in the same way, meditating is not the practice of emptying our minds, it's the process of chewing over God's word, ruminating upon it. It's taking the part, a part of the Bible and not only asking, what does this mean, but how would my life be different if I really believe this? Am I living in the light of this truth? What does this reveal to me about God and about myself? What does this make me feel? What should this make me pray? If you really mull on those questions, every part of the Bible will eventually lead you to prayer and praise. The pastor Tim Keller defines Christian meditation like this, taking God's word into our hearts until it catches fire there and begins to melt and shape our reactions to God, ourselves and the world. Now perhaps like me over the last month, you've really been challenged to pray more. But perhaps also like me, sometimes it feels like words fail you. Well let me encourage you to meditate upon scripture. Read a passage and meditate on it and turn that passage into prayer. 
Let God's own words guide your prayers, much like Chris demonstrated for us this morning. Psalm 1 tells us that this is the habit of a blessed person. It reminds us that we do not have a relationship with a book. We have a relationship with the one the book is all about. Now when we allow our thoughts and our lives to be shaped by the word of God, Psalm 1 paints this beautiful picture of what we will become. Verse 3 says, That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. The picture here is of a tree that has been deliberately planted right next to a stream. Because of this, the tree is not dependent on the change in, weather in changing weather or environment. Its roots draw deep from the stream, meaning that if periods of drought come, which they undoubtedly will at some point, the tree will remain well waters, watered. It remains healthy and is producing fruit in the right season. If we want to experience God's peace and his joy during periods of suffering and trials then we must make sure that we have roots which draw deep from his word day and night. Now in my own life I've experienced numerous periods where my relationship with Jesus has felt stagnant, where it's felt impersonal, where I felt like the world is shaping me and I'm not being shaped by God's word. Well, during those times, more often than not, it's because I am not reading and meditating upon the law of the Lord. I wasn't putting down roots. I was more like chaff than a healthy tree. Are you meditating on God's word day and night? Are you allowing it to shape you? Because if you're not, something else will be. Now in this psalm, we see that the righteous person is compared with the wicked person. And the final two verses draw out what is perhaps the most important distinction between these two groups. Verse 5 and 6 says, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. It boils down to this. God is for the righteous and he is against the wicked and a day will come when he will separate the two groups. The righteous will know eternal blessing and the wicked will know eternal punishment. I'd like to finish by asking the question, how do we measure up? Is this psalm just a list of things that we shouldn't do and things that we should do? Because if it is, I'll be honest, it doesn't bring me very much assurance that I'm in the right one of those two groups. We're going to finish by having a look at verse 1 and seeing how I measure up just against verse 1. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Now, when I joined the police in 2006, I was a Christian already at the time, and I went in with really good intentions. I wanted to have a positive influence on the people I was working with. I wanted to tell them about Jesus. 
I remember that I had a little sign that I kept on the inside of my locker so that I would see it at the beginning of every shift. Can you put it on the next slide, please? There we go. It says, only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, fast forward a few years, and I remember at the end of a church service, going up to a guy who's a copper who's now retired. Almost in tears, I explained to him, I joined the police wanting to tell people about Jesus, wanting to have a positive influence on those I work with. But over time, and without me realising, the exact opposite has happened. I was the one who was being changed. I was becoming more like them. My colleagues knew I was a Christian, and I remember one morning in a full briefing room, one of them showed me a news article on his phone. As he showed it to me, he said, look at this. One of your lot has gone to some foreign country somewhere, a small island, where the locals are known to be incredibly hostile to anybody who comes in. He went there because he wanted to tell them about Jesus. And surprise, surprise, they killed him. That's not very clever, is it? Now, I don't think that anybody else in the room had even noticed that this conversation was taking place, but I felt like everybody was watching. I wish I had said, what does that tell you about how much he trusted in the gospel, how much he loved Jesus, that he was willing to lay down his life to spread the gospel? But the truth is, I didn't say anything. I just kind of shrugged. I'm so ashamed to say that over time, I had not just walked with sinners, I just, I'd not just stood with them, I was now even sitting down with a scoffer. We're one verse into this psalm, and already I've done the complete opposite of what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, I could keep going through the rest of the chapter, but I'm afraid to say it doesn't get any better. The brutal truth is I do not come anywhere close to the definition of a righteous man that we see in this psalm. I'd like to say that's just, well, it's just Psalm 1. Maybe it gets better in the rest of the psalms. But listen to these other verses. This is from Psalm 14, verse 3. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord... Kept us kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? That's the question, isn't it? Who could stand? Is there any hope for any of us with words like that? A couple of years ago, my wife, who works for the Good Book Company, other book companies are available, um, <laughs> was in a titling meeting for a new book that was being published on the Psalms. The main concept of the book was explained to all those in the meeting and she came up with the following brilliant title. You're so vain, I bet you think this psalm is about you, don't you? <laughs> now sadly, they went for psalms for you instead. But the point is that to understand the psalms, we need to look beyond face value. We need to recognise that it's not just about us. This psalm is about Jesus. Psalm 1, like the rest of the Bible, is not there just to give us a list of do's and don'ts. It's there to point us to our only hope. None of us come anywhere close to meeting the standards of the righteous man described in Psalm 1. However, Jesus Christ 
embodied this psalm perfectly. Jesus surrounded himself in the company of sinners, but he never became like them. He never walked in their ways. Instead, he shone his light into their darkness. Jesus not only knew and obeyed the law, he delighted in it because he saw it for what it really was, not as a burden, but as a beautiful reflection of the character of God. But here's what is truly amazing. He came not just to give us an example, but he came as a saviour. If, like me, you read this psalm and your failures feel overwhelming, then you are right where you need to be. Jesus can only rescue those who acknowledge that they need rescuing, that they are not good enough. If that's you, then come to him. Repent. Put your trust in him. And not only will he forgive you, but he will give you his righteousness. You will get his obedience. Jesus alone has the power to rescue and set us free from the curse of disobeying the law because he died on the cross, taking the place of those who trust in him. Knowing this not only gives us hope, it changes the way that we see the law. Last year, Grace and I went to Harry Potter World or Harry Potter Studios. Towards the end of the tour, you go into this big bank vault, which is in the film. It is breathtaking. There's a picture of it here. The detail is just unbelievable. To think this was made just for a movie and that it is set is incredible. Everything looks so realistic, but it is essentially painted plywood. Once you've walked around it and looked around and had your fill, it really is amazing. The thing is you then walk through and you go into another room where you see some details about how they made it look so amazing. There are all these how-to videos. I was really interested in all the videos. In fact, Grace had to drag me to the next part of the tour. The thing is, if they'd have put that part first, I'd have probably looked at those videos and thought, oh, boring, let's go and find some more giant spiders or something. I watched those videos with delight not because they were great in their own right, but because they pointed to something that was great, because I'd seen what they produced. If you look at the law of the Lord in isolation, all you'll see is a list of rules. However, if you look at Jesus, you'll see that one of the reasons he was so beautiful is because he perfectly followed these rules. His obedience is what made him beautiful. Knowing that we are made righteous through Jesus doesn't mean that we'll ignore the law. It means we'll delight in it and strive to obey it. In Jesus, we truly find a way to delight in the law of the Lord because instead of being a burden that we cannot carry, it becomes a beautiful way to live in response to what Jesus has done for us. Delighting in the law of the Lord begins with delighting in the one who loves his people so much that despite our ongoing failure he was willing to die for us Jesus not only forgave us but he adopted us into his forever family if you come to him 
you will find delight. You will be blessed. And this isn't just step one of your Christian journey. This should mark every single step along the way. It's not grace to get you going and then back over to works again. It's all grace to be blessed, to grow. Every day we must look at the standard that we see in this psalm of a righteous man and realise that we don't meet it, but we can rejoice that Jesus met it for us. Part of our response to that incredible truth will be a desire to obey him, not out of duty, but out of delight. Now that doesn't mean it will always be easy. There will be times when the prosperity that is promised in this psalm will come through tears and trials and difficulties. But in Jesus alone, we have hope. Because he alone is the righteous man that is described in this passage. The more that we delight in this truth, the more that we delight in Jesus Christ, the more that we will grow as Christians and be more like him. The writer Ray Altland defines Christianity like this. Christianity is not about what we can do. It's about what God promises to do for us. Christianity is not fundamentally challenge. Fundamentally, it's assurance. As I finish, I want you to hear the assurance of a father who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for his people. This is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine.